comedy channel. We have no motto. The comedy channel. You laugh until you stop. Comedy is our middle name. And channel will be our last name then, right? Yeah. The comedy channel. Three-dimensional programming on a two-dimensional screen. Brought to you by a one-dimensional person. What the hell? Mottos come and go. The comedy channel. This isn't Russian. But we're always there when you need us. Get the picture? The comedy channel. The comedy channel. Funny. Free. You are listening to the Constant Comedy Podcast with Art Bell and Vinny Favalli. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Constant Comedy Podcast. I'm Art Bell. I am Vinny Favalli. And we are here and we are going to talk to our guest in just a few moments. Yes. Uh, and we're very excited about this week's guest. Yeah. You know, the Jonathan Katz who you know it's funny because when we announced we were doing this podcast there were expectations from a lot of friends and people that i know big comedy fans oh so when is john the cat's going to be on i'm like well i don't know that he wants to do our podcast uh i hadn't spoke to him in ages i think briefly when he was on letterman when i had left comic central he had made an appearance i just introduced myself but i certainly didn't work with him on any level when he was doing dr Katz. so i'm very happy to finally to be able to deliver <laughs> to our our listeners uh the um expected to be on john the cats because you know listen animation was a is still a big business but in the early days of comic central it's kind of amazing that one of our big breakout hits was a cartoon. Yeah, amazing. But, you know, looking back on it, it was such a singular approach to animation. I remember it was Squiggle Vision. It was like a breakthrough right there. They yeah. could do it inexpensively. They could do it in the United well, that States. That was the key because we didn't that have was the, the money. You know, yeah, once again, I mean, it was like launching Comedy Channel. We had to convince them that it was going to be, we, we knew how to do it cheaply. Similarly, these guys figured out how to do animation cheaply. And the, the genius behind it let them put a lot into the scripts, a lot into the scripts. And they got the world's greatest comedians as guests. And the ability to convey all of those emotions in, in a close-up of the actor, you know, the blink of an eye, the because it wasn't fast animation, like the way Art describes it, there were there it was almost like a still image with some movement, but that allowed you to ponder what was being said or a, a, a character reacting to what right. was said to and them. In case anybody doesn't know, we're talking about the show, uh, Dr. Katz, Professional <laughs> right. yeah, Therapist. With um, where Jonathan Katz, who was uh, has been around for quite some time as a comedian of uh, of note, very subtle comedy, very dry comedy, um, played Doctor Katz, and it was written kind of like a sitcom. You know, he had a little, he had a son, he had a crazy secretary, he had you know the usual sitcom accoutrements, but, but the people who ended up on his couch during his sessions were some of the great comedians around. 
during the day, you know, and uh, and he got most of them. He yeah, because, of them he, because he was friends with most. Yeah, of them. and he worked with a lot of them because he was on the scene in New York in the early years at the Improv, and then in L.A. And we should mention that he developed the show with Tom Snyder, not the chain smoking Tom Snyder who we all know and love from Late Night, but the other Tom Snyder who is equally creative genius behind Doctor Katz, and and that show had an interesting way that they did things, and we'll get into it with Jonathan, but uh, you know. It says a lot that Larry David sought them both out to pick their brains when he was doing Curb Your Enthusiasm, because a lot of Dr. Katz was that way, because they were working with a lot of comedians. They gave them the framework, and then they said, well, this is where we're going, but we're not going to give you too many details. And then they were off to the races. Right. Yeah, that show was breakthrough in so many ways. And uh, won an Emmy, won a Peabody Award, which is really, you know, a high-class award. And, um, and it was great to have it. On, and long-running. Central. Kind of like, like Mystery Science Theater. I mean, that was a, that's a big deal in uh, on network TV to have 81 episodes, but that was yeah. big and it's available on DVD and I think it streams on, on YouTube. Again, shockingly, doesn't seem to be available on demand on Paramount Plus, which is where Comedy Central is. You know, Mystery Science Theater has a pop-up channel and I think uh, Dr. Katz should too. So, you know what? They're going to see this podcast. The execs are going to see this podcast because I know they all want watch this point they watch this, this they yeah they watch their phone while it plays they don't just listen to it they look at they the logo. listen to this podcast and they're going to say now why don't we have jonathan katz on why isn't dr katz on so we are doing the world of public service by having as our guest today jonathan katz yes let's do this let's do it guess what i get the opportunity to introduce our guests today and Vinny, i just i have to confess to something here I know it was my turn to write the intro for today's guest, but after hours of research, I still don't know how to intro this guy. I know you Why? called me, you called me in a panic. It was, uh, <laughs> no. and I said, and what do I say? My, my cop out is let's, let's make that the intro. Let's make it a meta intro. So, well, meta or not meta. <laughs> I checked out this guy's bio on his website and found it tremendously unhelpful. And Wikipedia's write-up read like it had been hacked by a team of Russian surrealists. <laughs> Wikipedia said, no, get this. Wikipedia said the guy was a comedian who started as a musician and was the music director for Robin Williams' comedy tour. And then he co-wrote or got a story credit with um, his best friend, David Mamet. Some of that, yeah. that, that House that, of Games. Yeah, some of that is, is suspect. We'll have to clear all this That's, up. With so him. far, it's crazy. And became a successful stand-up comedian who went on then to create and star in Dr. Katz, professional therapist, Comedy Central's first animated and Emmy award-winning hit. I can say this. He's definitely funny. And I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Vinny, rather than try to... Tell everyone about our next guest. Let's just get right to the interview, okay? What do you say? Let's do this. Jonathan, where are you? Uh, I'm right here. Hey, <laughs> can you guys hear me? We, we can hear you. Can you hear us? We see a version of you. I want to co-correct your intro. Oh, see, this is the portion of our, our uh, this is the portion where we, uh, we get to, we let the guest correct the intro. Yeah, where they yell at us for getting it all wrong. Yeah, we get it wrong. Co-produced Dr. Katz. With, with Tom Snyder. Co-produced. Right. And, and not that Tom Snyder, but the other Tom Snyder. Yeah. And did you mention my book, The To-Do List of the Dead? That's on my list um, of things to talk about. Let's start with the book. Tell us about your book. Well, I was in an airplane. True story. We were taxiing on, uh, around JFK Airport. And I 
we had landed. And I called my manager, who at the time was Bonnie Burns. Love Bonnie. And I, I told her about my idea that I was, that I was bored with my own to-do list. And I created one for Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> which, which started with free slaves. Think of fancy fancy way to say 87 years ago. Both of those things checked off. And then beef up security at Ford Steel, which is not checked off. <laughs> and Bunny said, cats, that's not a joke. That's a book. Jonathan, art... Um, has had a crazy experience with his book. Apparently, nobody makes money from books. How did you? How did you make out with your book? Just uh, all I got was an advance of thirty-five thousand dollars, and and I, what I what I w was clever enough to do with the help of my literary agent was to recoup the publishing rights. So I own the rights to the book. I just don't know what to do with it. Oh, that's good. I, that's good. I, Having I, the rights is key. Having a movie. Yeah. yeah. It could be a really bad movie. Can people still buy this book? Is it available on Amazon? Yeah. Everything's okay. on Amazon art, even our book from 20-something years ago. Yeah, that's true. All right, well, I'd encourage everybody to buy Jonathan Katz's book, The To-Do List of the Dead. So did you guys, um, um, Jonathan, do you remember who you pitched the show to at Comedy Central? I know it came up through Nancy Geller, right? Through HBO? Yeah, well, actually, Tom Snyder uh, um, has a childhood friend named Tim Brain. I know Tim very well. And Tim Brain got Tom a meeting with, uh, I think it was HBO or Comedy Central in L.A. And one of the things they said to him, and he tried not to take it personally, but Tom, this is a great idea. What you need is talent. <laughs> he didn't understand the expression in show business. So... Um, <laughs> He discovered that he and I, he saw my performance in a movie called Things Change, a David Mamet movie, uh -huh. where created a comedian named Jackie Shore. And it was the kind of comedy he liked. And he discovered we were neighbors. And we got together. We became good friends. We worked on a number of things before we got to Dr. Katz. And yeah, that show had such a long run on Comedy Central, which was kind of incredible art, right? Like Yeah, 81 shows. episodes. That's that is a long run on any network, but on Comedy Central for sure. I think I told you, Art, but I'm not sure I told Vinny that 81 episodes during which I made one woman cry because I, I took my role as a therapist very seriously <laughs> and one guy feel better about himself. Who cried? Who felt better? <laughs> well, the guy who felt better was Bob Balaban. Oh, um, yeah. Love him. The woman who cried was Captain Gladman because... We were talking about real issues in her life, and it was painful. Yeah, I love Kathy. She was on a lot in the early days of Comedy Central and, and yeah. Comedy Channel. Uh, and that show, actually, thankfully, because you know, now, like, shows, they kind of go into the ether or they're streamable. I'm not even sure what Cats is, but you, the show concluded its run at the height of the DVD popularity. So you guys had the box set, right? The whole series was released, I remember. Yeah. And, you know, it's a show that won an Emmy Award and a Peabody Award. Yeah, Peabody, the coveted Peabody Award. Yeah. You know, I was I was just uh, on any 81 episodes. Of course, you had like everybody and his mother on. Uh, just reading down the list here, I'm seeing Dom Herrera, Ray Romano, Joy Behar, Dave Attell, Laura Keitlinger, um, Larry Miller, anybody, Kevin Meany, Stephen Wright, Barry Sobel, Rita Rudner. I mean, this is basically the who's who of comedy 
Let me ask you this. Was there somebody you wanted on the show that you did not get? Um, a guy I would love to have had on the show is Johnny Carson, but I'm not sure he was alive. Uh, when did you oh, he was. Him? Yeah. He might have been around, but did you ask him? I, I was on his show twice. What was that like? Yeah, I saw. I, I mean, that's a badge of honor. That's a big deal. I mean, you did all the staples. You did Carson and then you did Letterman, both versions of Letterman, NBC, CBS. What was what was the Carson experience like the first time? Pretty cool story because um, I, I went to the to the show with my wife Susie, and I was just to, just about to go on, and she noticed I had one hair standing straight up, <laughs> and and she said she asked me what I wanted her to do, and I said just yank it out. Oh my God. And I was so incredibly nervous, but the pain of her yanking out my hair centered me. <laughs> it was a great set. It was a great set. Did you uh, meet Johnny at all during that appearance? Yeah, I one of the two times that, you know, people, I was so intent. I might have to turn my camera on for this, but you know this hand sign? That, the okay, okay yeah. hand sign? Yeah. Well, I was so intent on getting one, I gave him one. Oh, my God. <laughs> You, you encouraged him to come out to the set of stage. Come out here, Johnny. <laughs> Stand next to me. That's that's so funny. Um, I, I know that you profess the love for Kenny Rankin, and I also have that same love. Is that correct, right, the singer, songwriter? I used to go to watch him at the bitter end all oh, the time. Okay, so here's the thing about Kenny Rankin. You know, he appeared on Carson 20 times, and Carson wrote the liner notes for one of his CDs for his albums. His first one. I did know that. It's something I had forgotten. It's pretty wild. What do you think? I mean, it was just Johnny into that because he would have loved your music too. Then had he heard it, Jonathan? Yeah, I. He was my inspiration as a guitarist and to some extent as a singer. My most exciting night in music was opening for Mose Allison at the Bitter End. Oh, Mose Allison, great. What were you billed as, Jonathan? Like, were you billed as a? Com comedian singer or just like a you know music of jonathan katz you know, this is before cats and jammers um so what year are we talking about we were still living in new york my wife and i and we moved in 85 i would say in the might have been in the early 80s but uh i still was using this little guitar that had uh all the all the music in it you know i, I pretend to be playing the guitar <laughs> it was kind of an auto guitar yeah That's and incredible. i and also had great backup singers in my guitar. What? And, yeah. Um, I used to have a guy going around with me to different clubs with a, with a real-to-real tape machine who was so fucking nervous. Can I say that word? Yeah, nervous. Yeah, nervous is good. And he was my first manager. He was also my brother-in-law. <laughs> and he had already made a lot of money in the, in the men's clothing business. But when he entered the entertainment business, he discovered the wonderful world of, of drugs. That's not good. That's not good for you. No. Well, let me ask you more about your music career. I mean, you spent a lot of time as a musician before you even discovered you were a comedian. Is that right? This is the experience I had as a musician. When I sang, people talked. And when I talked, people listened. And when I danced, people left. <laughs> Did you ever get the people to sing? That's what I want to know. You never sang along with me. But, you know, I, I like to interact with the audience, even as a musician. Uh -huh. But you never, you, you didn't go on as a musician saying, hey, you know what? 
I'd really like to be a comedian, but you know, since I can play guitar or I have the magic guitar as it were, um, I'm going to do this for a while and see if I can just throw in some patter that might make people laugh. I mean, was there a plan or it was the whole thing was kind of spontaneous? It happened too slowly, slowly to use the word spontaneous. You know, just, it was more of an evolution from a band to a cabaret act. You know, all, the, all these cabarets in New York City, like Mickey's and West Bank, actually was run by Louis Black. I performed there a lot and I did, I did my cabaret act, which is, which is just music and patter, witty patter. In fact, that was my stage name. <laughs> was the music comical as well? Like I, when I listened to um, your song, This Heart, it's perfectly constructed as a song. It's a great song and it's actually has a message, but it's also funny. So like, is, was it that kind of thing you were doing back then? Yeah. Uh, I sang a, a song, which I did not write, called uh, Carolina Rice. Um, I also sang a song called Born to be Punished which is one of the two songs that Robin Williams did on, on his tour, Reality, What a Concept. That that explains you being music director for a comedian. <laughs> which which were, the, were those songs also on his album? You couldn't afford me if those songs were on his album. No, no. No, <laughs> I, no you know what? That, that was, that, that was a Brazilian seller album. Yeah, that's what I was getting at, because that was a time when the comedy album was a big deal. It could be a big number one album and no one was hotter than Robin Williams so if you're music directing him wow so that was, that was more of an adventure um I'm, I think I got paid I don't even remember I must have gotten paid this well all my transactions were with Rollins and Jaffe who represented him but the reason I got the gig is because Robin Williams first wife was a girlfriend of mine in college a woman named Valerie Velarde and she said to Rob, you should hear Jonathan's songs. I think you'd like them. And he did. That's incredible. I, you know what? I mean, my wife does not allow me to interact with any of my old girlfriends in any way, shape or form. Certainly not, you know, on a business level. <laughs> the networking you could be doing. <laughs> I could be. I could have been really famous. But um, that's that's interesting. Your, your ex-girlfriend brought you into the Robin Williams circle. Uh, yeah. And she had to marry him to do it. So. Uh, Jonathan, so I want to talk about the improv and the. So you're from New York. That's where you grew up, right? Yes. And uh, so you hit the improv. And we want to say like the early '80s with a traditional stand-up. 1981. Okay, so who were your contemporaries back then? Uh, John Heyman, Rich Scheidner, uh Ron Zimmerman, um, Silver Friedman. Very funny woman. No, she's Bud Friedman's wife. I mean, that was that was the club. I mean, that was it was, you know, in the 70s, obviously, is when when it, when it started. But you were there. Was Larry David um, hanging around there at that point? Because I know he was on SNL at the time, right? Come in occasionally and um, told one great joke. I'm trying to see if I can remember. But he would go on stage and if he felt like it, he'd walk on. <laughs> he wanted the audience to appreciate him immediately. And his comedy was so obscure. I would say it was obtuse, but I'm not sure what that word means. Was Louis Black there then? No. And I went on the improv to a Catch a Rising Star. That was a cabaret kind of place, right, Catch? Yeah. And I asked Dom one night, uh, Dom Ira, how come you don't work at Catch a Rising Star? And he said, because you can only, only be humble in so many places. <laughs> So how um, how did you get scouted by the Carson people? Because the Carson came what year? Was that the eighties as well? Uh, no, it was ninety. 
91, I think, was the first time. Okay, so you went out to the West Coast at that point? No, no, I, I never lived. I, I lived on the West Coast for a year when I was doing the show called Raising Dad with Bob Saget. Right, right. So uh, you were just scouted the normal way they had people in New York or you played in L.A.? I don't know if the word scouted applies. Well, you know, who was the guy? Who was the big... It was Jim McCauley was the guy who booked it tonight. Right, camera. right. So I, I guess he would, I think the comedy store was the place where he would, because they were in L.A., where he would see a lot of comedians. So I'm wondering where they saw you. I don't know. Bob Morton was the guy who saw me. Oh, okay. Morty. Morty. Oh, you know who it was? I actually, the, the guy who was booking the show, booking the Tonight Show, I asked him directly. Oh, really? I, I, told, I told him I was getting the runaround from Macaulay. He said, well, I'm glad you asked me. We'll have you on the show, no problem. Oh, wow. Right, right, the, right, right. Because you had done Letterman already. That's right. What am I t thinking, right? You did Letterman in the 80s, right? Okay, so that's it. That's how you were on their radar, I guess. Um, right. And you did Carson twice, so that yeah, that's that's an incredible uh, rite of passage. I know you're friends with Stephen Wright, and and that that actually explains how you were able to get so much quote unquote talent, book so much talent for Doctor Katz, right? Like a lot of these comedians were were people that that you worked with or came up with, shared bills with, right? Uh, initially, and then uh, then things. Then we, I found myself in a situation where people would call us because they wanted to do the show. It was a good credit to have. Well, and also it looked like a lot of fun, I think. Yeah, there's that great uh, uh, Larry Sanders episode where, and it's so, it's so realistic when you look at those shows, right? Because I worked in late night for so long. Uh, where and you're you were in the last season of Larry Sanders, an episode, and you have an encounter with 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 Larry in the makeup room. Yeah, and I had no idea they had started shooting already. That was the amazing thing about that show. The guests didn't know that that, that the show had started already. <laughs> kind of like this podcast. <laughs> we just cold opening. So wait, so you're in there having a conversation with 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 larry sanders but you're also feeling that you might have been talking to gary shandling as well right at the same time he he had just done dr Katz, gary shandling which was really exciting yeah he was doing an hbo special and i helped him repair a joke and he said i owe you and so he did dr Katz. oh wow do you remember the joke that you repaired something to do uh with Who's the fighter who would bite people in the ear? I think it was uh, Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson. Yeah. yeah, and he had just been released from from prison, and the joke was, in case you're listening, we were kidding. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and and then the funny thing is, is this is so great. The scene between you and Sanders is you pitching him to do your show, right, to Doctor Katz, and him wincing at the possibility of it. Yeah, <laughs> it's so great. That is so great. The combination of reality and fiction was so blurry at that on that show, and wonderfully. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was, and you became. You know, I, I heard you in one of you know in researching this one of your interviews. You know, you you talk about like yeah, people think like when you do like a Letterman show, you're going to be friends with Letterman after you guys are hanging out. That's obviously oh, he's gone. He is gone. Around, he he greets you and he welcomes you to the show, and you probably never see him again. You're on stage the next time. Right, 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 because you've you've done it. Uh, but you did become friends with, with uh, Gary Shandling. Yeah, and we had a couple of things in common, including table tennis, what you guys probably call ping pong. 
<laughs> yeah, tell us about the table tennis. You're you're something of a champion. Is that right? In 1964, I was the New York State champion. That's great. Wow. Um, How did that happen? You just like kind of had nothing else to do, so you played table tennis with whoever else was around. No, it all, it all began at the YMHA in, on 92nd Street huh. in Lexington, where I, I overheard a conversation between two guys about a place where you can play ping pong for money. People gamble, and that was the place that run an established. Establishment run by Marty Reisman, two times U.S. champion, and he's the guy who taught me how to play. And I was telling Art, he just he took had, you on as a student. I mean, he just walked in and said, "Can I?" Well, no, you know, he's the guy who beat me with a chess piece the first time I went in there. He held the chess piece. I had a racket, <laughs> and he hustled. That can't be right. You know, he inspired me, his style, and also I was inspired by a guy named Dick Miles, who was a defensive. Oh, Oh, ask me what, what, what my style of table tennis is. What's your style of uh, table tennis, Jonathan? Defensive. <laughs> do you jump over the net when you win? Like, how does that work with table tennis? Crawl under, under the table. <laughs> no, so wait a second. I just, I just, I just got a picture of this. So you're playing table tennis. You're a champion. So that's when you're standing like five feet back from the table, right? Oh, yeah, I, much further back than that. I, was, I would stand maybe 15 feet back. 15 feet back. Yeah. And I, my whole set was about giving people the opportunity to fuck up, to make an error. Oh, so you just like you just kept returning no matter yeah. what was going on. You didn't try for that big shot. No, I occasionally would come in and put it away with my, with my forehand drive. But for the most time, I was, I was playing defensively. Um, you know, I have to say that probably matches your personality, uh, <laughs> I know your personality. Yeah. One, one of my favorite moves was uh, if a guy was about to serve and I was losing, or no, if I was serving and I was losing, I would tell him his shoelace is open. <laughs> Jonathan, when you saw Forrest Gump, were, we, were you one of those people going, that's not realistic? No, I was so pissed off because the woman <laughs> that cast that show was a friend of mine, Ellen Lewis, and I, she could have hired me as a consultant. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So you did, wait a second, just to digress there. I understand you were um, a consultant to the Bill Maher show. Is that right? Yeah. Now, how did that, you know, that, how did that happen? I, well, I think it was, Scott Carter was involved. In yeah, that. he's the producer. He's a great Yeah, guy. we had him on our show. We had him on the podcast. Right. And Scott Carter is an amazing guy, a really brilliant guy. And um, when I was living in, I was living in Westchester and I would fax jokes to Bill Maher. And then there was a story in, and, and then I would ultimately I came in and worked with the staff in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, there was an article in Newsweek about Bill Maher's jokes and about his best jokes, a couple of which had been written by me. Um, That's great. Yeah. And wait a second. And just, just so I know, in case I don't want to do this, did you just submit those, um, you know, on spec? You didn't know Bill. You didn't know Scott. You just thought, I'm sitting in Westchester. I'm going to write some jokes and mail them in and see what happens. No, I think Scott approached me about if I was interested in writing for that. Oh, I see. Um, or also, I was a guest on that show several times. Yeah, yeah that that would make that would make sense. Uh, John, you also taught you taught a, a course, uh, short form comedy, which I'm fascinated by. What like what's your definition of short form comedy? The course at Brandeis. Yeah. Um, you know, I gave the students and. Uh, a challenge of making something funny that was no longer than five minutes and that could use technology, that could use audio and video, but it could be no longer than five minutes. And uh, what did you get? 
some of the people were really funny. Oh, and, but for most of them, it was an opportunity to talk dirty. Uh, because, you know, I was a college professor. And the first one that, that because I was a comedian, I just assumed they could talk dirty. <laughs> and they thought that was funny or they just... Well, I, I, the first challenge I had for the class was uh, try to think of an idea for a game show. And some guy raised his hand and said, who wants to blow Eugene Mermelstein? <laughs> well, that is funny, actually. <laughs> one of those students worked as my assistant for a while. Uh-huh. They were a really smart group of kids. And this was Brandeis. Yeah. I also teach a course at a, at a place called the Improv Boston called Comedy and Collaboration. I taught it with a guy named... Uh, Bill Bradis, a superb comedian, and a guy with whom I could not collaborate. <laughs> the ultimate irony. What was it? Was it an improv class? I mean, it wasn't a stand-up class. It was improv. It was no. It's whatever you wanted it to be. I mean, I was just. Oh, you improvised the teaching as well. You no, know, Bill. One of the reasons we couldn't work together is that he was so prepared, and I was so unprepared. <laughs> um, and he now teaches comedy writing at, at BU. And uh, I don't know, was, he also was my first patient on Dr. Katz, Bill Bacchus. Oh, really? Well, that's, yeah. that's, that's quite an honor. And you're doing Katz, um, you were doing that live for a while, right? Or a version of it? You mean after the series ended? Yeah. Yeah. I would do it. We did a, we did a show of it live in Boston. And then when I got involved with Bruce Smith as my manager, uh, he got me into festivals in San Francisco and Austin, Texas, uh, into comedy festivals because you wouldn't have to pay for the talent. You, you would have to pay for the travel. They all happened to be at these festivals. Right, right. Oh, I see. So you just, it was basically a pickup, Jonathan Katz, Dr. Katz, professional therapist, live reading. I mean, these guys, guys like Mark Marin, uh, Janine Garofalo, Janine Garofalo, they, they happened to be doing other shows at the festivals and they will also do the Dr. Katz live show. And that was completely improvised or did you have a script going in or how did you do that? No, I, I had a short conversation just like I'm doing for this live streaming show on the 16th. Huh. A short conversation with each patient about a- any areas that they would like me to lead them into. Now, when you did the show, I understand, and again, I'm not sure this is correct, but you wrote a script for it, but then what you handed to the guest was more of an outline or uh, to, to the cast as well, was more of an outline. And you did it with the outline first and then you did the scripted version. Is that right? We did the scripted version first. Oh, you did the scripted version first and then you did it sort of imp- improvisationally and then you put it together. And for every 22 minute show, it might have been 40 hours of editing done by guys like Lauren Bouchard, who created Bob's Burgers and a show for Apple TV. Uh, and Home Movies? Was he in Home Movies? He was, yeah, he was involved with Home Movies. That show was created, I think, maybe by Brendan Small and, and Lauren Bouchard. John Benjamin is all over the, like, he's the king of voiceover of cartoons. He is. He's the best male voiceover actor. And I think Maria Benford is the best female. Yeah, I, I, I love Bob's Burgers. I think that show is is one of the funniest on TV right now. And, you know, the great thing about, like, Dr. Katz, and you must love this, you must get a wonderful reaction at the, at the festivals because, you know, art, like Mystery Science Theater, this was a show that people grew up with. A lot of it, uh, a lot of people, their senses of humor were informed by what Jonathan did and what Mystery Science did. So you must... Um, 
it's great when you when you that you're doing a live version of this now, much like how Riff Tracks does their live shows. Yeah, it's, it's just wonderful. The show has such a, a serious I mean, such a loyal fan base. Yeah, it's an incredibly loyal fan base. As a matter of fact, I mean, when you think about all the places Dr. Katz has been, either on the show or off the show, you know, references in movies and, and just people talking about Dr. Katz as a psychiatrist. I mean, for a while, it was like you were the psychiatrist to America. You were like the most well-known psychiatrist who actually wasn't a psychiatrist. All right, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> yeah, that's your list. Did, did you ever get complaints from the people of the psychiatric world? No, you know what? I did a show in Canada. It just happened to be in, in Toronto for the American Psychiatric Association. And Trinks are the best audience. Only, not, but they don't laugh until they see one of their colleagues laugh. <laughs> and then... It's sweet. <laughs> I want to make sure it's okay to laugh at what I just said. But they're a great audience. Oh, that's good. That's really good. And was you know, here's a personal question: Was your um the whole idea of Doctor Katz with uh, created by you and Tom Snyder, uh, did that come out of sort of a personal understanding of what therapy was all about? And you don't have to answer that. No, I, I think both of us have. have have experienced therapy in real life. Uh -huh. uh, and I I'm a believer in therapy. I just, it's also, it's tough because I'm also researching a role while I'm talking to my therapist. <laughs> right. And do you end up talking about that? I don't even know how that works. It's weird. My therapist lately has been wanting to get into show business. <laughs> <laughs> she, want, she wants to handle my, my music career. She's never even heard it. <laughs> He's on the right track because you got, you know, your music stuff is so good. Do you still, you know, you, you didn't, when John, when Dr. Katz, professional therapist, after that, you didn't really perform much music or? No, but I, I, a couple of songs on the show, there was an episode called Bully. And I made up a song on the spot. I'll sing it for you now. It's very short. A boy, a bike, a heart, so full, a mom, a dad, and a little stuff. Oh. And that was me singing about to Ben about about Ben's missing stuff bull called Bully. I remember that actually. Yeah. Now that you're singing it. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. Just to switch gears slightly, and we'll probably end up back at Dr. Katz professional therapist, but um you were best friends with David Mamet in in college, is that right? Yeah. And David Mamet being one of the, you know, the most uh, uh, lauded and well thought of and brilliant uh, playwrights and and uh, and screenwriters. Um, and you actually participated in him with him in in uh, the story of House of Games, which was a great show and a great movie. I got him coffee while he wrote the movie. <laughs> You know what? You're so I'm sure. I'm sure that you did more than get him coffee because they don't give you story credit for coffee. They they say you're the intern or the PA. We were both intrigued by the con artist, and I I would hustle ping pong and pool, and David was very often my shill at places in both in New York and in Chicago. Um, 
But I don't know how to write a movie. I did write one movie um, called, uh, it doesn't matter what it's called. It was a movie about a wife giving her husband permission to have an extramarital affair. And the idea for that movie was, and Larry David was about to write a very similar movie, but his wife, Lori, told my think Jonathan already wrote that movie. Oh, really? Yeah. So he called me and he said, John, Jonathan, I'm about to write this movie uh, about a guy whose wife gives him an ex. Uh, you mind if I if I read it? Well, Larry actually wrote that movie. Okay, I'll write something else. And then forget. <laughs> what, was the first, what was the movie he wrote? Sour um, Grapes? Yeah. Yeah. But it was also a runner on Curb Your Enthusiasm. And he called me about that again. And said, uh, Jonathan. You don't, you don't mind if I use that idea and curb your enthusiasm. And I said, oh, Larry, let me think about that. He said, come on, be a mensch. That's when I felt like I was involved with the Jewish mafia. <laughs> I love that. And did he also pick yours and Tom's brain on your process for Cats when he did Curb? He took Tom, Tom out to lunch, and he wanted to understand how he got such a natural-sounding dialogue. And Tom explained it to him. And he, it very much became the, form, the formula that they used for Curb. What was it that Tom explained? I mean, I know what he explained, but how did he explain it? The outline. The outline. Every time there was a new episode, Tom and I would meet at a restaurant somewhere and we'd go through the outline. Tom would read it to me and I would insert jokes. Like many writers, he was very good with the structure of the show. And I was very good at adding jokes. I, I was not really as serious a writer as him. So he was creating the framework for the episode. And then, right. yeah, well, that's, that's, that's actually, that's great. You know, and then like, you're like almost like the arranger who, who could take a song and then embellish it or do all the things. That's, that's a great partnership. Uh, and when you, when you get back to David Mamet, you actually, the Glenn Glary, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross story, you guys lived that together, right? You worked at a place with a lot of those characters. Called Web Realty in Chicago, and all those guys Jerry the Machine, Aaron the Machine, Bartlestein was one of the guys there. We worked there for uh, maybe six months, and I got paid $110 a month. And David wrote Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Wow! So when you saw the movie, you must have been like, Holy shit, I know these people. This is yeah. Well, wait a second, just so I'm clear. You worked there because you needed a job, the two of you needed jobs, and you ended up working there together. Or you were doing research for the movie? No, we had just graduated from college. David was doing research. And I, I never quite understood why he carried around this notebook all the time. <laughs> yeah, we're jumping all over the place here. You know why we're jumping all over the place? Because I think Jonathan Katz was jumping all over the place. Yeah, you, you're right. It, it, it wasn't Russian hackers. Apparently, this is all true. I think I told Art the other day that a lot of the stories I've been telling my wife, we were married for 40 years, and it's become apparent to her that a lot of them are not true. <laughs> you mean like you have a you have a great joke, a great line, uh, where you were renewing your vows of celibacy <laughs> on your anniversary. I've been I've been telling my wife for years that Jackie Robinson came to our home for dinner. Not true. <laughs> um, Jonathan, you're uh, Art, he's got a, a racket going with his podcast. First of all, it's Podcats, which is brilliant, right? Not a stretch. I don't think, I don't think that's true. No, it is, Jonathan. We, we both looked at it. Vinny and I looked at it separately, and we got together to talk about it. And, and we both laughed at the fact that it, was said, it said Podcats. So 
It is on WKATZ.com. Okay, but but somewhere it got truncated and became part of the word. Listen, Jonathan, own it. It's a great joke. Own it. Even yeah, if really. You, you write jokes without even knowing you're writing them. You're killing me here. <laughs> That's how good you but, are. But listen to this racket art that Jonathan has. So we bust our hump to do these deep dive podcasts like we're doing with right. Jonathan here today. Right, right, right. And, um, you know, the conversations can go hour, hour and a half, plus our wraparounds, plus the research. Jonathan does a set. And, the, and it, by the way, it is a much better podcast than ours. He does a seven minute show and maybe a couple of years might pass between episodes. But <laughs> they're up there, Jonathan. So I I love love your podcast and uh, or whatever its origination was. I guess it did start as these these bits that you did for 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 your website. But I in listening to them, I I had a bunch just playing, you know, one after another. It's like listening to a great like late night talk, like late night radio host. Did you did you love radio growing up? Do you do you love that world? You know, I listened to Big Dan Ingram uh, to go to sleep. Love Dan Ingram. I love remember his jingle, Dan Ingram. But I, I never was into comedy as a teenager. Is that right? You know, I used to. The thing is, I used to. I've been recording since since I was a kid. My father once brought home a woolen sack, real to real machine, eight years old, and you know, I would record with my cousins. We would read record things that we saw in Mad Magazine. And then one of the things, this is something I'll share with you after the fact, is that my nine-year-old daughter, I took about 50 reel-to-reel tapes to Woods Hole, Massachusetts, which is the home of uh, the world's best public radio producer, a guy named Jay Allison. And anything you like on public radio, he probably was involved. And we went through all those tapes. I told him I was looking for the voice of my mother, which I was. I wanted to hear her voice. She died very young. But what Jay Allison heard was something else altogether. And he sent his first edit to Ira Glass, who put a scene with my daughter singing, a, who was nine years old at the time, singing one of my songs. And it was like a romantic ballad. Ira Glass said, pretty odd choice of songs to sing with your nine-year-old daughter. Anyway, I'll send you a copy of that. I'd love to hear that. Um, but yeah, you should listen to your podcast. It's just, it's, it's great because it's, I don't know what's real. I don't know what is it. You do these... Uh, these uh, these scenes, but but I love the way it starts and the music. Is that did you write the the little damp? No, no, that was written by a guy named Michael something foolish. But uh, my favorite kind of podcast I would make was calling up comp- calling up a company like Comcast, and they claim that they record all your calls for quality control. Right. <laughs> like most of them. So I asked the guy if I can get a hold of a recording just to use as a demo. And the guy said, well, uh, I'm going to have to talk to my supervisor. And so he talked to his supervisor. He said, uh, no, I can't do that. I said, well, you know, I've noticed that your hold music is not that good. I wonder if I, it's possible for me to, to write hold music for you guys, which might, your callers might find a little more compelling. Well, let me tell my supervisor. Anyway, I kept the guy on the phone for about a half, 20 minutes. You know. And you did that for Crank, you did some of that for Crank Yankers too, right? Yes, I did. When phones were first developed, I think the second day somebody did a phony phone call. <laughs> I think we can probably rely on that as a probably a fact. Jonathan, um, so like you've done so many things and fascinated at the fact that you were the showrunner for for Raising Dad. Not not surprised given your talents, but 
that's a shitload of work. I mean, that's pretty. I, I had a $1.2 million budget per episode. Right. I had no, no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I, get call, I get a call from business affairs, uh, Jonathan. Jerry Adler is he's seven out of 13. And I said, you bet. Um, <laughs> Oh my God, that is and that was on the WB, and that was a, like it was a big deal. I think we were running that when I was at CBS. It was under Leslie Moonves, and my buddy Norman Steinberg worked on one of your episodes. Oh, I needed his help. I had no idea that he he became the co-producer of the show. Yeah, he's the guy you want in the trenches. Well, he survived Cosby at CBS. You know, I I would walk into the writers' room and and I had. Hired many wonderful writers I know from stand up, uh, including BJ Novak. I gave him his first job in, te- in television. Wow. But I would walk in there and I would start giggling <laughs> immediately. The fact that they were trying to make a joke by in concert cracked me up. That, were you guys all trying to figure it together at the same time as opposed to? Yeah, I, I don't think that way. Right. Well, there's different ways to write the to set up the writers' room, and I guess you could have controlled that, right? Like I, the way Larry David and Seinfeld operated, from what I understand, is they were in an office constantly writing. They were getting pitches from the other writers, and they were piecing it all together. But you're saying this was almost more by committee. Well, you know, it was it was just new to me. It struck me as funny that it took eight or ten people to decide on what's funny. Right after after what you had done. It, it's amazing that you got the job. I have to say. Well, yeah, and Art, it was a full season, 22 episodes. I know. 22 but, episodes. But, you know, to a couple of things you said, you, you know, Tom Snyder was like setting up the, the structure of, uh, of Dr. Katz and you were sort of filling in. But, you know, it, it ended up, I, I always thought Dr. Katz had a great sitcom structure, you know, it sort of had, I mean, I don't remember exactly, but, you know, I had an A story and a B story and, and, you know, the requisite number of acts and everything. It seemed very much like, like a television sitcom. And now you're saying you actually were working on a sitcom, but you had no idea what you were doing. And it was your idea. <laughs> and it was your idea. Well, you know, I, I, I sent Norman uh, what I, just a script I had written, and he said, Jonathan, you've written a template for a sitcom. Oh, really? Yeah. I forget how Norman and I became friends. It was before the show. I don't know, but he's an incredibly funny guy and sweet guy. Art, Norman wrote Blazing Saddles, co-wrote Blazing Saddles. He yeah. co-wrote My Favorite Year. Incredible. Uh, and is the nicest Great guy. We, in fact, we should have him on. I should give him a call. We really should. I would love to, to meet him. Now, what's interesting, so your show lasts 22 episodes, but, Art, I don't know if you knew this, um, Jonathan was on one of the highest profile sitcoms that failed epically on CBS. It was DreamWorks, I believe, first TV show called Inc. with Ted Danson. Ted Danson, yeah, I remember Inc. I played the head of business affairs. That show actually was one of those, it's, it happens, not all the time, but where they shoot the pilot and they go, oh no, this is not going to work. And they redid the pilot. Did you, were you in both pilots of the show? I think of myself as having saved that show. <laughs> you know the show died, right? Yeah, but it wasn't working until I got involved. Oh, gotcha. Okay. I, I'll, you know what? I'll, I'll give you that. Ted Danson is like a virtuoso in sitcoms. Uh-huh. Just the way he walks and talks. He's brilliant. And I could not walk and talk at the same time. So Tommy Shlami, who was directing the shows I was in, developed this trick where somebody would open the door and I would be there. <laughs> Ted or Mary, 
uh, <laughs> and I would I was terrifying to them. That sounds like a great gag. <laughs> and you did it over and over. Did you meet Spielberg? Did he come to the first taping? I didn't. I met him with Tom Snyder. Oh, he invited us to come out to Hollywood to talk about Dr. Katz. Now, why? Why? What, what did he have That's in mind? So cool. I don't know, but I made two really bad jokes. He was so intrigued by the way we make the show. He said, you know, uh, they, they were doing animation, of course, with Katzenberg. And I said to Stephen, we do all the animation in Massachusetts. We do the voices in Korea. <laughs> so that was bad joke number one, which is actually pretty funny. Bad yeah. joke number two? Uh, what's really Amistad about... Slavery? Yeah. I said, it's so amazing that you, you did this amazing movie about slavery and you didn't say if it was good or bad. It's just not for everybody. <laughs> so really bad. Well, I could see why, by the way, Art, they, they would want to meet because like what, what, what Tom and Jonathan figured out, and look, a lot of it is, or the success of, of Cats, honestly, Squiggle Vision is not it. It's, it's, it's the writing. It's what they did. I think the thing that really distinguished Dr. Katz from other cartoons was not just the tone of, that the actors used, but the fact that they laughed at each other's jokes. John Benjamin and I, we got hysterical in scenes. He's the guy who portrayed my son, and we were laughing out of control. And the other thing that Tom figured out is that the patients who were all comedians, they we're used to hearing the sound of laughter. So he invited his whole, you know, it's a company with about 110 people, Tom Center Productions. So he invited all the animators and other people to come into the room. And he ran a separate line for me from the booth, the recording booth, to those people to use as audience. And only, it didn't go on to tape, but it just the comedians or patients were able to hear the laughter. Yeah, it's genius because that's a their great idea. Their timing would have been right that way. Because yeah. without the laughter, their timing might have been off. Yeah, and and the job that job was really an acting job. It took me a while to figure that out. I thought I was their therapist. Where can you see Doctor Katz now in the world of streaming? I don't know that it's anywhere besides YouTube. It's really is that right? That's so weird because it should be. It shouldn't it be on Paramount Plus or HBO? I mean, HBO's got some Comedy Central shows too. So, Jonathan, do you you do you own the rights to that? Can you do that again if you wanted to without? Oh, assistant once asked me. She had a southern accent. Who owns your face? And I, I don't even own likeness to my face. Oh my God! Right, because that's you. But in theory, if you wanted to use that as your avatar for something, you couldn't. Well, that would be a sad day in court when the judge says, "Okay, you can't look like yourself anymore." So, Jonathan, what's this event that you have coming up right now? You said something on the fourteenth. It's a fourth or fifth episode of Dr. Katz live streaming through a company called Rushtix, R-U-S-H-T-I-X.com. Patients are Kevin Nealon, who's wonderful, um, Bill Burr. He's great, too. And also J.B. Smoove from Oh, my God. He's hysterical. Is this going to be, so is this uh, a live stream? Yeah. You'll, you'll actually see my actual person and you know, it's like it's like a, a very elaborate Zoom call. It's a live. It's live in that you, you get tickets to it. And um, do you have to get permission to do it like this, or you, or is this like you can do this on your own? No, because it's not the animated show. I'm not trying to replicate the animated show. What if you're accused of being too animated on a live Zoom? 
<laughs> you have to move around a little, Jonathan, because if you stay still, they'll be like, wait a second, that's a squiggle thing. Just to reiterate, your book is available on Amazon with everybody else's book. Um, and the name of the book is? The To-Do Lists of the Dead. To-Do Lists of the Dead, yes. People can go to jonathancats.com and I see there are links for everything here. Do you remember what Patrick Henry was famous for saying? No. Patrick Henry was famous for saying, giving me, give me liberty or give me death. Oh, yeah. And his to-do list was, try not to blurt things out. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's a great outline if I ever heard one. It's been great having you on. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. Yeah, you certainly live up to your reputation, which we developed as we did this <laughs> podcast, that you've done a million different things, and most of them brilliantly. So um, thank you for being you and for being animated and live. And uh, we were really thrilled to have you. Thank you. Yes, yeah, same here, Jonathan. And I think we're going to go off when we, when we uh, edit the show together with your song, This Heart, because I love it. Okay, thank you guys so much. Man, that was so great seeing Jonathan after all these years. Yeah, no kidding, you know. And actually, he has achieved even more fame since we last saw him because he, as I said, he's, he's kind of become the psychiatrist to America. So many people <laughs> say, you know, he shows up and shows. People say, I got to see Dr. Katz because, I, you know, I need a psychiatrist. I mean, he really got into the pop culture, and I was reminded of that. And it's great that um, his this animated show, right, is adaptable to a live environment very easily. Oh yeah, how cool it's, is that? He's doing he's doing live readings. I didn't even know that. Yeah, he's doing pop up shows, which is wonderful. Yeah, and then as COVID hopefully fades more and more uh, as a distant memory, there'll be more live shows where he could do that. And it's great because you know these the comedians love him. They've all been on his show, right? And um, and a lot of times they're at the comedy festivals already, so it's not like it's hard to book them. You know, they're there, and right. and they like Ray Romano. Don't get, doesn't get much bigger than that, right? And he's been on the show. So if he and Ray are on the same bill somewhere at a festival, they could do a show that night with not a lot of prep, because that again, like like the whole Larry David Kirby enthusiasm. It was great the way he talked about that. How they just kind of vamp it. Yeah, no kidding. Huge influence. That show had a huge influence. And the people, you know, the the voice characters on that show went on to greatness, you know. Each oh my God, his son. Yeah, yeah, John Benjamin. He's, he's everywhere. He's He voices every male character you can think of. But, he, but he's so good, too. Like, not just like a great voice, like he's funny. His voice is the way he carries his characters, especially in Bob's Burgers. That's, he plays the dad and it's just, it's funny to hear him talk and he doesn't even sound funny, but the, he imbibes the character so well with his voice. Yeah, that's a real, a real talent. You know, the other interesting thing was that, um, you know, Jonathan was uh, started in the, as a musician and his comedy kind of came out of being on stage doing music. I know. I, I, I like how he, I'm glad that he explained how he was a music director for Robin Williams. Like who, what comedian has a music director? But back then I remember now, like he had the albums and there was music on the albums. There was comedy and the connection with Robin via his first wife and being Jonathan, I think's ex-girlfriend is terrific. But then like, so he did cats and jammers, which, uh, which was a cool jazz combo, but um, not only did he write, 
uh, movie with David Mamet. He worked with David Mamet at a place that inspired Mamet to write Glen, Gary Glenn Ross, right? That yep. was that was I've been hearing, but that was great. But then, and we're going to go out on this because it's so so great. Um, the the song that he wrote with David Mamet called "This Heart." Uh, it works song. on yeah, beautiful. It works on both levels. It's 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 a beautiful song, great melody, well played, uh, great lyric, but also a funny lyric without being a, a novelty comedy song. So. Uh, Art, with that, I give you this heart from the Constant Comedy Podcast. Thank you, Vinny, and thank you, Jonathan Katz. Yeah, John, come on, bring us out. See you next week. I grew up not too far from here on the west side of Manhattan, so I'm naturally being asked all the time what I think is the essence of country music, and that's that's a tricky one because... Is that... Sorry, the phone. Hello? Hi, honey. Me. Yeah, look, I told you not to call me here. I'm working tonight. Oh, Johnny, I just got to see you. Listen, we go through this every night. I don't have to keep telling you. I thought I made myself perfectly clear when I pointed out that this heart is closed for alterations. And the management extends apologies. I'm sorry if I've inconvenienced you. I'll make it right before I'm through But for a little while just bear with me Cause this heart is closed For alterations So please excuse the rubble and debris You soon will see a few revisions Cause I've reached those hard decisions That I think will make a new man out of me This heart is closed Yes it is, for alterations And the management, well they're sorry as they can be You know I'd love to spend some time with you I'll call you in a week or two When I get over what she did to me I see that I've been taken out on you The changes that she put me through And you're gonna see some changes made in me This heart is closed, sing it boys this heart is closed For alterations Yeah, this heart is closed This heart is closed For alterations Well, this heart is closed This heart is closed For alterations I said this heart is shut tight This heart is closed For alterations Thank you.
Rosette.